Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to resilience, business continuity, disasters, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I am the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Today's topic, we're going to talk about security and operational resilience. And today's guest might look familiar because we've actually did uh, in the summertime, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, a webinar together uh, with James Green and uh, a couple of other, John Luisi and Daniela Parker. Uh, We did a webinar and uh, I wanna welcome to the show today, Steve Hindle. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex, great to be here. Great to have you uh, again because this will be kind of, in a way, your second appearance. Yeah. Second appearance. Now, I know you and I have uh, talked back and forth, and I know what you do and uh, and things like that, but could you take a minute and talk about yourself, tell us what you do, and how you got into what you do? Sure. Um, increasingly brief cliff notes. How about that? Um, I, uh, I've, been, I've been working in... Security, compliance, resilience, and business continuity now for just over two decades, and I don't want to date, date myself any more than that. Um, I, I broke into the security field after working in operations um, and doing a lot of consultancy work and then moving into IT and building foundational IT architecture for large public companies and their brands. Um, and I worked within the BPO industry. Uh, so I was 25 years in the BPO industry. The reason for that um, is because every day was different. Um, we had over 400 top-tier Fortune 500, 150 clients, household brand names that you all recognize, use, and know every day. And um, to build the architecture to support those clients, every single one was dedicated. So that means every single piece of architecture was different. As I moved into more of a security and operational role, um, I was then responsible for securing 400 different pieces of architecture for 400 different companies. So it meant that every day was just a, a little bit different. Um, and we were all over the world. We were in 70 uh, odd locations in over 45 countries, which means that um, as you progress through all of that with about 160,000 people, there's a lot that can happen. There's a lot that can go wrong. There's a lot that can go right. And of course, there's all of the relevant risks and controls that go around that. Um, after Since 2018, uh, I have led crisis management. Um, you mentioned James Green earlier. James Green worked, uh, worked with me with uh, the Arab Spring Uprising, the Fukushima nuclear disaster, um, and we've led globally disruptive crisis response um, for over 70 um, massive BCP and cyber resilience um, impacting efforts since 2018. So that's a lot in anybody's terms. Um, and it's not necessarily when you've got breach experience as well, two ransomware incidents, again, public company SEC filings, nothing I'm telling you isn't public knowledge. Um, nobody wants that on their resume. Employers like to see it in a candidate, but you know you never really want to have to go through that. But um, But I've been there and unfortunately done it. So um, so it's been a, it's been an interesting journey, to say the least. Well, great. I'm glad it brought you here today so that we can chat. No, I appreciate that. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of knowledge share because the, the community, the cybersecurity community, the, the resilience community, the business continuity community, they've all been very good to me throughout my career. I've learned a lot working with professionals like James, like yourself, listening, learning. I'm always an avid learner. Um, and I think that it's it's my opportunity now with the experiences I've had to, to give back as much as I can. Uh, and I've been the CIO and CISO 
um, in, in several different companies and organizations. I work now uh, with two fintechs. Um, I work in the application development space, the AppSec space, and I advise cybersecurity companies. I advise companies who are doing um, accounting fraud, algorithm detection. I'm a big fan of disruption and I always look for something that makes a difference in the world that I can I can hopefully lend my expertise to. So very grateful for the opportunity to chat, Alex. Great. Not, not too many people look forward to disruption. I, I, I have to add that. Not too many. <laughs> oh, you've got to be into it. You, you've got to be a little bit of a punk rock fan to, to, um, to, to be, be okay with disruption because disruption is how we change, right? Most of the innovations in technology have happened because of disruptive events. We would never have made it to the moon if it wasn't for the, the atrocities of war, which spurred innovation, right? I mean, that's the that's the nature of it. Um, and I think that's really, it's an important context um, for any professional to have. It's like you shouldn't shy away from the hard things, the crises, um, because that's how you really learn and grow. You never learn from your successes. You learn from your challenges. You learn from the hard times. You don't, you don't learn when it's easy. But that seems to go against what a lot of people see. We're already way off our agenda here, which is fine. <laughs> but that already it goes against what most people want. You know, they don't want to be faced with disruption. They don't want to encounter or, or face their fears, you know, whether that be on an organizational community or individual level. So how do you go about changing that mindset then to know that when you do experience something bad, you can learn from it. It's an opportunity. It's not something negative. Even if the situation is negative itself, there's something there you can learn and grow from. That's that's absolutely my mantra. So I, I mean, I said earlier that one of the organizations that I worked for in my in my history was 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 a large public company, one hundred and sixty thousand people. My approach to technology and security is inherently people focused. Um, I led a team of over sixty individuals all around the world, several of which still work with me today as consultants for my own company that I I run when I'm doing the advisory work globally. Um, to enable the global reach that I have. Um, you have to have a culture. And this is this is something that drives me really to my core. You have to have a culture that empowers people to fail. Um, you can't you can't do that by, you know, you just turn around in a team meeting and say, okay, guys, I, I want you all to just, you know, don't be afraid of screwing up. Right. You can't say that and then hold people to account for their mistakes in a negative manner. We have to encourage people to fail, especially as leaders. You have to encourage your team to take risks. You have to encourage your team to take responsible risks, not be afraid of failure, because if you fail, fail quickly. Fail fast, learn from that, because it will catapult you forwards much, much quicker than, than it would have done if you'd have just sat there and taken the safe option. Um, so one of our, one of our uh, employees in my, in my North America team a long time ago, um, we're going back like five years, five years in security seems like a, an age. Um, they, they would suffer from analysis paralysis because they, were, they wanted something to be perfect. To deliver a result, the result had to be perfect in their mind. Um, and that resulted in analysis paralysis. It, it resulted in the result, the the, um, the deliverable being delayed and delayed and delayed with a lack of communication as to what the delays were. And when we finally got down to it uh, and we sat down with, with this team member and we, we dived into, you know, what was taking so long? Why did they feel like it was better not to deliver a result than to deliver a result that probably wasn't as good as what they were trying for? what they were aiming for, but at least it was delivered. At least it was done. Because then we can then provide feedback, constructive feedback. Okay, this is not quite where we want it. You're early, so let's make these adjustments. Go away, come back with the feedback, and it's 100 times better than it was if you'd have just tried and focused on, on perfection and not got there. So that culture has to come 100% from the top. And that's the same with what we're talking about today, Alex, about the operational resilience side, right? It has to be culturally driven. I've left organizations and I've left roles because of 
my strong moral compass and the way that I believe people have to be treated and the way that an organization, I believe, has to look after their people, encourage their people, grow their people. Um, I'm, I'm happy to say, quite proud to say that, you know, I've made changes in my career when I've seen a culture that isn't isn't really aligned with with my North Star. So that's encourage people to fail, be constructive, make sure that you're you're not setting the bar too high. If people see your work product and they think your work product as a leader is just phenomenal, it doesn't start that way. We start with something that is truly imperfect. Michelangelo, right? Looking at a block of stone, he said he just kept carving at the stone until the angel came out. That's his that's that's one of the things he said when he was asked about, you know, how do you do this amazing sculpture? He's like, I I couldn't, you know, I'm I'm crap at this. I just do it until I see it, you know. And that's the nature of refining your craft. People look at a leader and they look at what they are. Maybe they're an analyst, maybe they're three or four tiers down in the organization. They look at the top and they go, I'm not good enough for that. And they don't they don't try because they don't feel like they can fail forwards. Is is that because sometimes leadership forgets they themselves had to fail to get where they are? So there's a mindset that some leaders have where they don't want other people to fail. You know, I don't want you to go through what I went mm-hmm. through. So they put this unnecessary pressure, which actually takes away a learning opportunity on their employees. Absolutely. Uh, one of my one of my team, a leader um, from my Asia Pacific region, um, he would actively, actively um, prevent his team from failing, actively prevent his team from failing because he didn't want them to have to deal with the, the ramifications of that. Um, and it took a long time because uh, he was a, you know, uh, we, we refer to them as type A individuals, but that has a little bit of a negative connotation as well. There was nothing negative about this guy. Um, but um, but he had this, he had this driven thing that he wanted everybody in his team to be looked upon as being successful, being perfect, being like, oh, they, these people, they always deliver good results. That's fine, but it is an iterative process. And if nobody sees that you are helping and coaching your team, then how can you take a break? How can you leave and go on vacation comfortably? Because then your team have to then step up. I mean, it's that whole piece around succession and career planning. They have to step up and they have to go fill that void. And if they look upon you as being perfect, and if your senior leadership or your executive leadership looks down your chain and looks upon those individuals as being perfect, and they don't see the iterative process that goes into that, then at the point where somebody steps away or somebody steps up or succession planning puts somebody into a position that they may not feel like they're ready for because they're afraid of that failure. They're afraid of taking those risks and stepping forwards. It's kind of, um, you know, th- there's good intentions there. You know, oh, I don't want you to fail. Nothing but good but intentions. At the same time, it's, uh, what's the expression? It's like a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. And that's why it has to be cultural and it has to be driven from the top. And you have to, you as a leader of leaders or, you know, a manager of a team, you have to drive that within your team in every single conversation you have. If you expect perfection, then, or if you're constantly, oh, that's in the wrong place, change that, you really should do that differently. Then your team are just going to, they're going to get beaten further and further down. Um, But if you, if you, change your language, change your tone, how you approach those conversations makes makes a world of difference because then everybody steps up a level instead of working comfortably within what they know that, well, I'll deliver this and my boss will tweak it and it'll be fine. You know, it's, yeah. it's, got, it's got to be a, a cultural tone. It's got to be a shift that happens at the top that encourages that across your organization. And not everybody's capable of delivering it straight away. It, it's going to take time. Yeah. It's, it, it kind of reminds me uh, uh, of building a house where you know, you take forever to deliver something because you can't decide on what color the walls are going to be painted, yet you haven't even made the decision on what the foundation is going to look like yet. You know, totally so fair. I love that analogy. Stop, stop focusing on the wrong spots. Mm-hmm. You know? And, well, you know, we can't deliver this until we know what color the third bedroom will be. 
you're you're exactly right, and and that's you know in in cybersecurity as well. Um, if we if we look at you know our broad topic of operational resilience, if we if we if we if we imagine that um, you know looking at what color we're going to paint the walls, you know where are we going to put the windows? But you, you haven't even dug the earth and put the foundations in yet. That's where a lot of people are when it comes to cyber resilience because they're focusing on well, if we buy that sofa. Right, you haven't even got a house yet, but oh, if we buy that sofa or if we paint the walls this color, mm. then it will match the sofa. That's what they're like when they're selecting technologies to uh, to secure their organization or empower their organization. And yet they haven't; they're ignoring the foundations. Right, it's on sand or marsh. It's in the swamp. Right, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. you haven't even got there yet, but you're already picking out the silver bullets that you think will will make your organization resilient. Right, and yeah. there's no focus on people. There's it's an inherent focus on technology, and you're maybe like six months, six years down the road, but you know somebody's selling you a silver bullet, you'll take it. Meanwhile, the foundations are a little bit shaky, a little bit rocky over here. Yeah, I think that's the perfect uh, spot to end our first segment. We're talking with Steve Hindle today about security and operational resilience, and we will be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Steve Hindle about security and operational resilience. Steve, great first segment there. Uh, a lot of talk about the culture and re- uh, relationships and uh, leadership perspectives. And that leads us into what you just started to talk about at the very end there, operational resilience. So I'm going to start with a loaded question. What is operational resilience to you? I like the fact you put those last two words on there. What is it to me? Because operational resilience means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about it right at the start. It's like if you ask somebody what cybersecurity means to them or if you ask somebody what um, you know, IT means to them, you know, they'll throw out a lot of buzzwords, they'll focus on, on a lot of different aspects to this. Operational resilience to me um, is, is inherently people-focused. Um, I say that 
because that that has to be how your company flexes. You can be a technology first company, you can be a cloud first company, right? You can you can effectively be be a team of five people running, you know, and providing an application to the world that services millions of people, right? But at the end of the day, anywhere throughout the chain, anywhere through the the, the product life cycle, um, the development life cycle, the deployment life cycle, the uh, the the kill chain, if you look at it from a from a fraud and risk management perspective, anywhere through that, there are people at every single point in that in that ecosystem. Um, so when I say I have a people-focused approach to technology, that is my approach to, to resilience. To me, operational resilience, it's operational because it, because it is inherently focused on your people, right? I mean, I know we're going to touch on this, the people, the processes, and the technology. For me, people always comes first. Um, it's, it's the underpinning of it. You cannot be resilient if you don't take your people as being the first question you ask. What do we need to service the needs of our customers? What do we need operationally to be able to stay in business during an event to keep our people safe, to make sure they can continue working and to service the needs of our customers? Every single point in that chain, people, 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 people. But why do so many, and I'm experiencing it right now, why do so many leaders tend to call their uh, technology resilient. We, we need a resilient technology and the people are taken out of it, but they see, uh, you know, technology and applications and, you know, things that come from vendors and I'm not knocking any vendors, those products and services will make them or help them be resilient. And people aren't in that. And I think that really, um, that speaks to the the nature of of what it is that people are trying to to make or sell or provide whether it's a box product whether it's a service um at the end of the day what is a business focused on it's focused on making money right i mean that's the, that's the nature of it um you can claim to be a people first business all you like but if the revenue is not coming in you can't employ your people so it's all about money right follow the money um at the end of the day if we are if we are building a product and we want that product to be successful, then the customer has to love that product. Apple is a primary example, right? It's not just that people like Apple products. They don't. They love Apple products, right? Some people love Apple products more than they love other people. And it <laughs> has built a, uh, against trying to avoid the negative connotations of the word, but it has built a cult following, right? Um, a cult of personality from, from Steve Jobs, right? If you imagine his personality was Apple, right? And then when you look at the product set, people will, they'll have a pretty recent iPhone that maybe bought it a year or so ago, but the second a new iPhone comes out, they will hunt that iPhone down and they will buy it and they will trade off their only six month old piece of technology that works perfectly fine for the new one, right? I mean, it's like, that's because Apple understood the people behind what they were trying to sell. They stopped selling a, a piece of technology and they started selling a personality. They, this, this thing has a personality, right? I mean, and everything around it, they're selling, they're selling this concept of what makes the iPhone, your earbuds, you know, your your Apple Mac, your MacBook, all this kind of stuff. And you have similar pieces with people who like Microsoft's technology, right? And Windows-based technology. They'll like it because they're inherently familiar with it. It's that familiarity. I love a lot of features that come with Android phones. I see my friends with Android phones and I really like some of the features. I can't get those features on the iPhone but I'm familiar with the iPhone. I'm comfortable with the iPhone, right? And so it's the same for how organizations approach operational resilience in their technology, in their processes. You're driving that towards the people. If you're building a product and your customers don't like how they have to navigate the buttons, it's just not intuitive, then the market adoption of that product is going to falter. And if it falters, then your 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 total addressable market, your TAM shrinks and your revenue shrink. And that's going to adversely affect your people. It's going to adversely affect your marketplace. User acceptance testing UAT of a product inherently focuses on the people. Why, 
why do we hesitate to do the same thing in our resilience programs or our cybersecurity programs? Why do we think that we can just push technology out there that can negatively impact or affect the user experience in the name of resilience or security? I mean, why do we think that's acceptable? Because there are practitioners out there in the industry that do. There are the my way or the highway, this is how it is because this is secure, or this is how it is because this drives resiliency, regardless of whether you find it cumbersome to use or it negatively impacts your productivity, doesn't matter because it's secure, it's resilient. We're, we're okay with that. Why are we okay with that, Alex? Right? Yeah. Kind of reminds me of uh, New Coke, where I swear nobody, if people were involved with that, we wouldn't have had New Coke. And, <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> and uh, Microsoft Vista, you know, if people were involved with that, that wouldn't have happened either. So um, if, if, if some organizations aren't including people uh, in the fold with operational resilience, how do you turn that around? How do you start getting them involved with operational resilience to change that focus from, uh, you know, technology focused for lack of a better way of saying it, or a simple way of saying it, to people focus. Uh, it's so I, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna screw around. It is difficult. It's difficult because it has to start from the top. That tone, that that transformational change. If that's not how your company is wired, or if that's not how your your product programs delivery, if that's not how they are inherently built, if you are coming into something and trying to affect change, change only happens from the top. And it has to start with executive buy-in, right? You have to drive this from the highest echelons of the company or the program or the department that you are trying to affect that change in. And it's change management 101, right? We've talked about this. It's about, it's about collaboration and partnership, right? But more than that, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? Is it a problem of, well, we do not have a level of resiliency that we should? Is it that we are not as operationally agile and able to flex and pivot should a crisis befall us? If that's the case, you can't affect change in that regard without showing how you're fixing the problem by the transformation that you're taking. Um, it was, for example, way, uh, I keep saying way back, I am dating myself terribly and sending incredibly old. You can say that. Right? I've been around a long time too, so you can say that. So, I mean, I, I came from, I, I worked in banking um, for, for many years. I worked with the, the bankers, Royal Bank of Scotland and Bank of Scotland um, a long time ago. And I worked in government before that um, in, the, in the United Kingdom. And um, everything happened slowly. And we were all based on punch card and mainframes. And that was even as, as, as recent as the 90s, right? And I'm not talking like back we're talking the 1990s it's not too long ago right admittedly if i said that to my kid uh, or to my partner because she refuses to watch um you know movies from the 1990s she thinks they're too old and i'm, I'm like i blew my mind we watched heat last night purely because i'm we were talking about classic movies and it's only 1995 and the movie hasn't dated itself and it was groundbreaking um so if we go back to the 90s punch card mainframes right if you'd have talked to people about the cloud then they would have thought you're crazy. You go into the 2000s and you start talking, talking about the cloud and everybody was negatively just saying, the cloud is just somebody else's computer. They're right, but everything that the cloud brought to the table around resilience was groundbreaking. We're not in data centers anymore. I say friends don't let friends run data centers. I stole that shamelessly uh, from another CIO out there in the industry, but I love it to death. Friends don't let friends run data centers, right? Collapsing and closing your data centers, moving to co-location facilities, and then moving co-location facilities into native cloud environments, like US, Azure, Google Cloud, wherever it may be. All of that lent itself throughout that journey to more and more resilience. You're deferring risk when you shut down your data center and you move it into a colo because you don't have to worry about the generator, the security. You don't have to worry about those pieces inherently. And then you're doing the same even to a greater extent when you move into the cloud. You're building in global geo resilience on top of that, east-west resilience, and then segmented regional uh, presence in the cloud as you kind of push through, always focusing on where your data is and where its passport allows it to travel. All of that to say, you can't get there overnight. 
that change in tone to deliver that transformational change in a program that doesn't have or isn't focused on people and the inherent improvement of people's lives, either internally in the company or for your customers, that doesn't happen overnight. And that change has to occur at the top with what problem are we trying to fix? How is it going to benefit the company? How is it going to impact our revenues? Always the question. And all of that has to happen here. It can't happen down here. So with all the different technologies that are out there, the same would be true about people, different kinds of people. How do you get them all to not necessarily be the same, but march to at least the same drummer? You know, because if they're, you know, like I said at the beginning, um, you know, what resilience is to you, it could mean something different to someone else. Wouldn't the same be true with all your employees, all your managers, all your C-suite? All these different people have to come together, you know, and, and you have to be able to address some of these uh, different personalities out there to get them all moving in the same direction. How do you uh, take that into account? If, if I said no to that question, no, you don't, then I wouldn't be here. Um, I mean, quite. it seems obvious. <laughs> it seems obvious to people like you and me, right? Um, but it isn't. It isn't obvious to, to, most, uh, to most people because, again, um, when you're talking about, okay, what we want to do is we want to move our, um, our technology platform, our application, we want to move it out of our data center, off our on-premise legacy equipment. Um, we want to go cloud native, right, because it will give us agility. It will give us scale. We'll be able to flex. That's what we want to do. And you will encounter people in your organization that will say, sounds great. Where's the money coming from to do that? Or sounds great, but it's been built on-prem. I can manage it here. I can I can do everything I need to here. As soon as we put it into the cloud, I've got all this interconnective tissue that I don't really understand. Uh, yeah, I think that's a mistake. How are you fixing the problem for them? The problem for them is they people don't inherently like change. People actually really don't like change. Right. I mean, we talked. We talked um, earlier in preparation for this call. We talked about our setups, right? And we talked about how, for you and I in particular, and, and me because it's it's now part of my my being. Um, my my mental noise, the noise in my head, is calmer when things are organized around me. Um, my my kid says that I live in a in a show house, not a home. Um, and it's only because my my OCD requires me to keep it that way. Now that sounds great, right? Um, my, my partner, my wife, she she turned around and said, um, you know, every woman should marry a man with OCD because then they never have to clean their house. Um, but the nature of it is that the more stressed I get, the more my my environment outside of my control is filled with chaos and change. The more I clean, cleaning for me is a coping mechanism. Putting things in order around me enables me to focus on putting things into order in whatever it is that's affecting me in my professional life at the time, whether it's crisis management, risk management. At the point where I was doing crisis management for the Arab Spring Uprising, and we were days without sleep, and we were mobilizing teams all the way across the North African continent to evacuate people and move people safely from one place to another, my house and my environment was the cleanest it's ever been. Uh, that isn't necessarily healthy, but it certainly enabled me to laser focus on managing my way through that crisis and making sure that I was able to, to accommodate people. So that's a long road to bring it all the way back to say, people will always be resistant to change. What you have to show them is the why, and you have to start with that why. What is the problem that you are trying to fix? Why are we changing? Because people are comfortable with change. Why are we changing? And what is the benefit that I am going to bring to you in your daily life or the lives of our customers by making this change? And it's all well and good, you know, Steve Hindle saying it as a CISO or a CIO or a CTO, but it has to come from the, the top top. So you're, you have to get your CEO, your board bought in to why the company is making this change and then drive it down through the tiers of leadership, not by the CEO coming out and talking to, you know, your cleaners and your receptionists and your, you know, your, your facility management people. No, no, no. 
drive it so the CEO tells his leadership team, gets them all bought in, they all drink the Kool-Aid, and then they then disseminate it further. And it's, it's, re- it's repetition all the way through. The people understand and everybody is communicating the same language all the way through your organization, bought into the change. And if you encounter resilience through those tiers, those grains of the, of the geography of your organization, if you encounter resilience, make sure there is a mechanism for feeding that all the way back up to the top quickly so that that feedback will then reach the top levels of the organization to say, well, it's fine. It's going great. The change management is working wonderfully in North America. But let me tell you, when we started talking about this in Germany, we encountered, we started encountering a lot of friction. We got these people that were really not bought into this. And here's why. Because anybody who's ever worked in, in a German you know, function of an organization, the workers' council has to buy into any change before that change can be rolled out. You want that feedback to happen quickly, upwards so that you can adjust the messaging or you can address the problem and go, wow, hang on a minute. Just because this change works really well in North America, maybe it doesn't work well culturally in Asia. Maybe we are doing something here that actually goes completely against the grain of our people that we are trying to serve. You can't hesitate to get that feedback up to the top fast because maybe that will put the brakes on and allow that pivot into a slightly different direction to enable that change to take place. Does that make sense, Alex? Yeah, one size does not fit all. Impossible. As a former stand-up comic, you can't you can't make all your audience laugh all the time. There's going to be somebody that will sit there and go, really? Mm-hmm. Get right? off the stage. <laughs> Get off the stage. Exactly right. <laughs> Completely there. On that note, we've come to our uh, second segment. Uh, the end here, uh, we're talking with Steve Hindle with Security and Operational Resilience, and we will be right back. America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you feel you have a bigger life's purpose than you're currently living? Of course you do. Activate your passion as you tune in to Sovereign Self with host Sophia Renea Morales. Become the conscious creator of your own life. Connect with your most powerful and purposeful self in order to make big things happen for you now. Sophia and her guests are doing this every day and are sharing how you can step into this power too. Listen to Sovereign Self every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. We are talking with Steve Hendel today, Security and Operational Resilience. Steve, great second segment there, as well as the first. Um, Lots of interesting viewpoints here. Uh, So my next question for you, is there are a lot of articles uh, that I've come across recently um, that identified three pillars of cybersecurity, people, processes, and technology. Which comes first? Which I got a feeling I know what the most important is, but which comes first? How do you bring that all together? Okay. That's, I mean, it's easy for me to, to answer that in brief and say people. I mean, we've talked all around this, the people, everything has to be built around your people, your customers or your employees, um, or your customers and your employees. Um, and, and then obviously the relationships that you make all around, the, all around that. If we talk about resilience in, in its 
its in its broadest sense the ability to um, you know keep the lights on in the event of some incident, whatever that may be. Right, operationally keeping the wheels turning, keeping your product active, keeping your revenue flowing keeping your, your people in work. If we think about COVID-19, right? Lots of rifts, lots of people downsizing, all this kind of stuff. But keeping the lights on, keeping your people going, keeping your operational um, uh, capabilities in play, people should take your, your, first, your first standpoint. However, if you don't have robust processes that are inherently focused around your operational pillars and your people, then the process will start to fall apart. This is why... Planning, preparation, and testing is, is an integral part of any BCP, integral part of any resilience program. It's all well and good to, to plan it, right? Plan, do, check, act, right? All well and good to plan. But most people miss the testing of those plans. They, they miss the, the, the inherent pieces of, okay, well, we're, we think we're prepared for ransomware because we bought this wonderful technology and we have a plan for if we get hit. Great. Are you testing it? When was the last time you tested it? Or you can turn around from a, from a BCP perspective and think, well, you know, natural hazards, disasters, power loss, we've got generators, you know, we've got backups, we've got UPS. All of that means we can keep the lights on. Really? Yeah, yeah, You test your generators? Absolutely, we do. Well, we had an issue in, in the organization I worked for where we did, we did generator testing at least once a year, sometimes every six months, depending on client contract. Tested our generators, fired them up, checked the fuel levels, made sure the UPS batteries were all functioning. Did we do load testing? No. We were a 24 by 7 shop, and the operational management of that organization would not allow us to cut the power because we were 24 by 7. We had to service the needs of our clients 24 hours a day, and we had SLAs, uptimes, and metrics that we had to accommodate. So when we had a power outage at one of our facilities, generator had been tested literally months before. We knew it worked. We knew everything functioned. UPS batteries had been checked. We knew they worked everything fine. The power failed. The generator kicked on. Everybody thought it was going to be fine. The lights were still on. Computers were still running. People were still working. What they didn't realize it was we were just running on battery. The breaker, the cutover from the generator, from mains to generator power hadn't flipped. Generator was running but we were just draining those UPS batteries completely flat. And then when the UPS batteries completely died, all the lights went off, but the generator was sat there and it was happily running away, just like it had been tested, right? Are you testing your plans? Are you testing them appropriately and effectively, right? That's the, that's the key piece. It's the same for anything, ransomware, business continuity, civil unrest, right? Natural hazards and disasters. Test those plans to the nth degree and make sure they're resilient. Make sure they stand up to the stresses of those tests. I mean, that's, it seems, it seems natural, right? It seems, it seems pretty inherent. But if you take it from that generator example that I just gave you, you can sit down around a table and go, okay, yes, that's fine. So uh, we've just been hit by ransomware. We've got some files that are encrypted over here. That's fine. I'm going to hit contain on my little nice silver bullet EDR platform over here that's going to contain the threat. I'm going to hit that contain button. Everything's fine, right? Now we're going to just talk to our lawyers about the data that's there. Okay, that's great. Tick in the box. Ransomware plan tested. Tabletop complete. Feedback. What's the feedback? What are the lessons learned? Lessons learned. It all went great. It was fantastic. <laughs> no problem. We're going to handle this absolutely fine. Until such time as you do get hit and you find it's not just one machine over there and your antivirus, your EDR, your endpoint detection response tooling apps has got a, something that's fallen out of sync, definitions aren't quite up to date, hasn't quite secured that area, you push that contain button, it doesn't, and then it starts creeping across your environment. Well, now it's you're in the United States, you're all around the table, you're all on a bridge, but the ransomware is creeping across India, and India's all asleep, and you can't get them on the phone because maybe the telephony infrastructure isn't quite there. All of these things can fall apart unless you test them. So the process has to accommodate that. It has to be resilient enough to, uh, to pivot on a dime should the unexpected happen. Um, and if you don't have process that's capable 
of being agile that is capable of adapting to the changes in the environment in your response plans, you won't find that out unless you test them. So the people and the processes have to tie together. It's kind of like people are or have a lot of assumptions about different events, technologies, processes. <laughs> Those assumptions find their way into processes when they're being developed and even being tested. And then assumptions are made about technology. Using your example, the generator will kick in and will do X, Y, and Z. And it, before you know it, everything seems to be built on assumptions. Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't. I, I couldn't agree more. The reason the reason I paused and didn't didn't jump in straight away there is um, there's there's nothing there's nothing I can say. There's no counter to that. There there's no counter at all. Um, it has to be the, the the key word is resilience, right? It has to be resilient. It has to stand up to the unexpected. That's why I love the the title of your of your podcast, Alex. I think it, it's it's truly it sums up resilience in in and of itself. You're not preparing for what you expect. You're preparing for what is unexpected in that event, in that in that technology, in that in that people, in that process. But it has to be accessible. It has to be able to accommodate different types of people, just like it has to accommodate different types of technology, on-prem, you know, infrastructure, cloud-based infrastructure, whatever it may be. Um, if you're not adaptable and accessible, um, I was chatting a few days ago with, uh, with, uh, with an individual who is so passionate, Justin Murhoff, he is so passionate about accessibility. Um, it, he's, he's, he has made it his... Um, his mantra and his brand now is, is accessibility. And we were talking about, you know, business continuity. And I mentioned you and I mentioned James because James, ages and ages ago, we did a talk, 2018, we did a talk that um, was about active shooter and workplace violence. Um, and we spoke with, with, you know, top tier organizations, Fortune 100 organizations in this, in this forum um, here at the Buccaneers Stadium. And we delivered this. Um, as part of United Healthcare Global's um, resilience aspect. And we were talking about workplace violence um, and crisis management. And James uh, spoke about it in a way that, that shocked people in the audience because um, he talked about, you know, the, the, the three tenants of run, hide, fight, um, or, you know, for active shooter um, response. Um, but how does that apply to someone in a wheelchair? Where's your run, hide, fight then? Um, how does it apply to... 70-year-old Bob who is in accounting who's not so good on his feet, um, right? How does that apply to um, one, of the, one of the ladies that may be pregnant maybe she's just a few weeks away from her maternity leave and what? You, you run, hide, fight, especially the fight part. You're expecting that. That's part of your plan. How do you make your plans accessible to everybody? Your security awareness training, training people how to uh, respond to these events like phishing, how to recognize them, all this kind of stuff. If you're delivering that training and you have employees that aren't necessarily capable of following those instructions or those training manuals or materials, perhaps they have ADHD, dyslexia, how do you tie all of that together? Through the technology, right? You have to make sure the technology is empowering your people is making your people's lives easier. From a cybersecurity perspective, the reason I have an Iron Man logo above my head, um, and some people are starting to refer to me as the Iron Man CISO, is because I believe in Iron Man's approach to being a superhero. He's just a guy. But he's a guy that is empowered and made super by technology. He has a big brain, and he has billions of dollars, and he's handsome. Let's put those to one side. He's still just human. He's inherently human but he's made super by technology. And we can do that for our people. We can make them resilient through technology. We can make them super and security champions through technology, whether they're 70, whether they are heavily pregnant and about to go on maternity leave, whether they have learning difficulties or challenges in understanding the way that, that is neurodivergency, right? Technology can make all of that operational resilience come together. Does that help? Yes, we only have well two minutes left. Any final thoughts on security and operational resilience? 
I think as, as leaders in the field um, and, or as practitioners in the field, let me take it away from leadership. Um, let me put it more into the practitioner side. As practitioners in cybersecurity and resilience, we should be inherently focused on making people's lives better, safer, more resilient through appropriate use of technology. There's no silver bullets out there, regardless of what the vendors will tell you. And if we're not making people's lives better through technology and process, we're failing in our, our roles, trying to drive operational resilience. I think sometimes there's too much of a reliance on technology to give us all the answers instead of um, combining ourselves with technology. And I don't mean, you know, Robocop. Not completely. Like that. Steve Hindle Steve <laughs> brought to you today by ChatGPT, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the nature of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think sometimes, um, and you've said the, the phrase a few times here, silver bullet, we get a piece of technology that's all our that'll answer all our issues and that's not the way to go that's not going to create resilience in your organization it's not going to help your people um you know which is the key as as you've you've said quite a few times and i think that's what some organizations are doing incorrectly they're putting the technology before the people and thinking that the answers will be provided by technology rather than the people 100% science fiction authors have been have been warning us about this for the best part of 100 years have been saying that technology will be mankind's downfall if we don't use it appropriately. Yeah. Yeah, and Hollywood movies, uh, at least there's a blockbuster every year that has something like that. 100%. What, what was the one that made the headlines just a little while ago, and it was from the 80s? War Games. Oh, War Games, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah definitely. <clears throat> but see, now I'm dating myself. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the years, it's the mileage, Alex. That's what we'll leave it at. <laughs> Steve, it's been great chatting with you. Uh, My I really pleasure. enjoyed having you here today and talking about all these different uh, aspects and uh, different ways of looking at operational resilience. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure entirely. Be more, be more Iron Man. That's my takeaway message. <laughs> I'll try. Uh, I don't think I look as good as he does, but you know, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate you, Alex. Thanks. Thanks very much, Steve, and everyone watching and listening. Stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.